on the Ten Commandments, and very shortly, Pastor Rex is going to start sharing today's message. But before he does, um, I want to introduce this video for you. What would be this series without Charlton Heston, right, introducing this? Uh, right. So please do enjoy this video. What Does God Expect From Me is a nine-part sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Wait, nine parts, Ten Commandments? What? Woe unto thee, O Israel! You have sinned a great sin in the sight of God. You are not worthy to receive these Ten Commandments. We will not live by your commandments. We are free. There is no freedom without the law. Did you carve those tablets to become a prince over us? Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. We wanted to find out whether people in our area could name all Ten Commandments. So we sent our lead pastors out into the community to get the answer. Shalt not kill, thou shalt not have any gods before me. I don't know them in order. You shalt not steal, you shalt not lie. Um covet your neighbor's wife or manservant or maid. Oh, that's really specific. Again. Etc. Got me on the ball, let's see. Lord your God is the only Lord. Shall have no other gods before him. Um, Keep holy the Sabbath. Um, Honor your father and your mother. Um, What are the other ones? Thou shall not steal. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not. Um, it's a f- no. Yeah, covet thy neighbor's wife. Um, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Well, welcome to worship today. What an amazing day this is that God has given us. Back in the late 1980s. I spent just over a year visiting a convicted murderer. Uh, I was living in Buffalo, New York, working with the Billy Graham team on a crusade there. And Jeff Carter, the head chaplain of the Attica Correctional Facility, talked to our team and said, do you have anyone who could come and, and visit Mark Chapman? Mark Chapman is the man who killed John Lennon, member of the Beatles, back on December 8th. 1980, shot him four times in the back, um, just in front of his Dakota department right there beside Central Park. And so I ended up being the person from the team who went, and every two or three weeks, I would go over to Attica. Attica looks like a big castle, like a huge medieval fortress from the outside. And uh, I would be escorted to a room where, through high surveillance, I would sit with Mark Chapman for about two hours, and we would discuss all kinds of things, theological, philosophical, just life issues, and so forth. And I never, I never, ever went to visit Attica Correctional Facility, this place that, that is, the, is the home for some of the most violent criminals in all of the United States. I never went there without commandment number six, you shall not murder, being somewhere kicking around in the back of my mind. Now, I doubt that I'm talking to very many murderers or potential murderers today. 
In fact, I doubt if any of you got up and said, oh, I can hardly wait. Pastor Rex is preaching on murder today. Maybe we ought to just skip this and move on to the next commandment, no adultery. Now, there's one that is incredibly relevant to our lives. But I believe that as we unpack this commandment today, I think we're all going to be amazed that although it may seem distant and obscure to you, it really touches all of our lives in a number of ways. So I invite you to go on the journey with us as we sort of unpack commandment number six, you shall not murder. But first of all, I want to talk to you for just a moment about what this commandment does not mean what is not forbidden by the sixth commandment. And the reason I want to spend a moment or two there is because ever since the King James translation came out in 1611, and it translates this phrase in Hebrew, (coughs) excuse me, thou shalt not kill, some people have a bit naively assumed that therefore the Bible is teaching that you Uh, can't kill under any circumstances. This forbids any kind of killing, any kind of a taking of a life. So let's, let's talk about that for just a little bit and unpack what is not forbidden. First of all, and I invite you to certainly take some notes if you'd like, killing animals for food and clothing is not forbidden by this commandment. Animal, animal acts rights activists are are trying to get uh, labels put on fur coats that say an animal had to die in order for you to wear this. And uh, uh, if we took that to its logical conclusion, every time you bought a Big Mac, it would need to be stamped with the label, this used to be Gertrude the cow, I hope you feel bad for eating her, all right? Now, the Bible teaches that animals should be treated with respect, with dignity. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a little statement that says, um, don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. There's also a command that says two animals that are different shouldn't be yoked together. Both of those are commandments about humaneness to animals. Because the ox had a right to eat and have plenty to eat while it was working. So don't muzzle him so he can't eat. Allow him to eat all he wants. The worker's worth his wages. Okay? And two animals who weren't the same yoke together, the, the yoke would chafe them. It would not be pleasant for the animal. So the Bible is really into humaneness to animals. But nowhere does it say we're not allowed to kill animals for food or clothing. We're to have dominion over the animals. In Genesis, it says, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. God is speaking to Noah here after the flood. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So God told Noah it was okay to kill Uh, God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. God instructed Moses to use animals in sacrifice in the Old Testament. Now, if you choose out of a conviction or for health reasons to be a vegetarian or a pescatarian, as our daughter is, that is wonderful. You'll probably be a lot healthier. You'll probably avoid a lot of the major health problems that many Americans have. But we have no no moral mandate in Scripture that we're forbidden 
to kill animals for food and clothing. Second, this does not say we can't defend ourselves. Self-defense is not forbidden. Look at this passage from God's Word. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. Now, the point there is that if an intruder, if a burglar, if a thief is coming into your home in the darkness of night and you defend yourself and your family and this thief is hurt or killed, you're not guilty of murder. That's an act of self-defense. But it's saying you can't go out the next day after you've been robbed and say, where's that thief? I'm going to hunt him down. You can't do that and kill him. You need to turn him over to the authorities. An act of self-defense is not what this commandment is forbidding. Third, it's not forbidding war, okay? It's not forbidding the killing during a time of active battle. In fact, Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war and a time for peace. Now, let's be very clear. War is always a horrible thing. Horrible. I wish we could avoid it every single time. We need uh, to celebrate leaders who make genuine efforts to try to wage peace and not war, okay? Uh, We don't want to be warmongers, all right? But uh, God instructed the Israelites to go to war against the Philistines. And I believe we need to acknowledge, as thinking Christians have done for centuries now, that there is such a thing as an, a moral, obligatory war. You say, well, what, what would that look like? I'd give at least three categories. I would say if a nation is defending itself against an aggressor. Second, if a nation is helping a weaker nation who's being offended, uh, all right, and in jeopardy, and that nation has asked for help, okay? Or if we're trying to thwart an international threat, such as the Adolf Hitlers of the world, uh, monstrous dictators, or terrorists. Those would all be what I would call just wars, and I think we actually at times have a moral obligation. Next, this commandment does not forbid accidental killing. Look at this interesting passage here in the book of Exodus 21. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. By the way, that is simply saying that, you know, if you kill someone intentionally, uh, wow, God instituted the death penalty for that. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, He is to flee to a place I will designate. So this is talking about an accidental killing. Now, uh, it gives the example in Scripture of two men are cutting wood and they're using axes and one of the axe heads flies on. This probably is a real thing that happened in real life. That's probably where this law grew out of a real life incident. The axe head flies off and it hits the guy in the head and kills him. 
says, look, the guy who was using the axe for the axe head flew off. He's not guilty of murder. This, this is an accident. And God provided six cities of refuge, three on the west side of the Jordan, three on the east side of the Jordan. That's what he means by a city, a place I will designate. God designated six cities of refuge where when someone, something had happened like that, someone accidentally had caused the death of someone else and the family was mad and trying to kill the person or a mob was after them trying to take their life, this person could flee to the closest city of refuge and that was a place of asylum. That was a place of grace where they could be safe and no one was to touch them. When they were there, a priest carefully asked questions and examined the person. And if the priest determined that indeed they had done it intentionally, then this criminal was sent back to their community to be dealt with there. But if the priest determined indeed this was an accident, the person was safe in that city of refuge. Also... This does not forbid capital punishment. This passage of Scripture is very interesting. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, I want to tell you, for in the image of God, God made man. Now, I want to tell you, if there was ever a controversial issue, this is it. Boy, I tell you, I've sat in so many college and graduate and postgraduate classrooms where this topic comes up, and you have thoughtful, intelligent, really passionate, committed Christians on both sides of this issue. So let's acknowledge that right up front. But one thing we cannot deny, if if we're being serious about Scripture, is that at least in the Old Testament, At least in the Old Testament, God instituted capital punishment. But the arguments are hotly debated. Does it really deter crime or does violence actually perpetrate more violence? You know, is it really just to do and and, and so on and, and so forth? And some people believe that Jesus actually abolished capital punishment. And we'll say just a word about that a bit later in the message today. But uh, I believe that if capital punishment is practiced, it should probably be practiced a bit differently than we usually do it today. I think the intention was that it would be clearly connected to the crime and that would happen in a fairly speedy fashion. You say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, but you can put the wrong person to death. Yes, you can. And that's why God, when he instituted this in the Old Covenant, was very specific. It can't be carried out unless there are two or three witnesses of this. The death penalty cannot be imposed if the judges are so close in their vote and their perspective on this that they only vote for the death penalty by one vote. Then it's not to be carried out. Okay? And... God was also very clear that justice is to be carried out without any attention to socioeconomic status. In other words, no favoritism to the rich here. But I believe the way we do it today, I'm, I'm not sure that's what was intended. Look at this passage 
from Ecclesiastes 8.11, Ecclesiastes 8, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. And so when a criminal sits on death row for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, with all can finally, I'm not sure there's any connection and I'm not sure there's any motivation to repent and get the life right with God and, and so forth. But these would all be examples of things, biblically, biblically, that are not included or not forbidden by this command, all right? So let's move on. What is it talking about? What is forbidden by the sixth commandment? Well, obviously, let's look at a few of these. Obviously, the deliberate taking of a human life is forbidden. Recently in the Capital Region, less than two weeks ago, October the 14th, a young woman was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for the brutal murder of a 79-year-old man. The motive was uh, to steal money for, to fuel her drug habit. America has become a very brutal, a very violent place. We're usually in the top five nations in the world in homicide rate. Often, we're number one on that list in terms of the homicide rate in America. And so God says, I want you to value life. Life is precious from conception To its very end, I want you to value and respect life. Don't murder. Don't murder. Scriptural teaching is very, very clear. But increasingly, it seems that life is cheap in our culture. Secondly, this definitely would forbid suicide. The murder or the killing of yourself. We were all saddened on August the 11th when we got word that Robin Williams, the famous comedian, had taken his own life. And there were so many front page articles. Time Magazine said in their feature article, one man, one man who brought joy to millions could not sustain it in his own life. Suicide, in my book as as a pastor, as I've seen families grapple with this through the years, is one of the saddest things I have ever seen. It leaves a family devastated with all kinds of confusion and questions, not not knowing even how to feel. You say, well, what about Brittany Maynard, Pastor? You know, she's on the front of People magazine. She's she's on the talk shows. Everybody's talking about Brittany Maynard. In just a few days, she's going to take her life in a doctor-assisted suicide up in the state of Oregon, one of a handful of states in the U.S. that allows such a thing. What about that? She's been diagnosed back in April, given six months to live, stage four glioblastoma, most aggressive, most deadly brain tumor known. And so, her family has the means to do this. They all move to Oregon, where she says on November 1st, she is going to administer the medicine that has been prescribed by her own doctor, and and she'll die. Now, she insists it's not suicide. Uh, But doing anything that imminently ends your own life is, by definition, suicide. 
That's what suicide is. But perhaps because she and her husband are so attractive, perhaps because she is an eloquent spokesperson, she's been speaking for the movement called Death with Dignity, and she's getting a lot of press. What about that? How should we feel about that? Well, here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what Christians believe about the value of life and the value of our own body. 1 Corinthians says, Do you not know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? Now, catch these next words. You are not your own. Would you underline, double underline, triple underline that phrase? You are not your own. Now, Brittany, Brittany says, I believe this choice is ethical, and it's ethical because it's a choice. That's a quote from people, by the way. I believe this choice is ethical, and it's ethical because it's a choice. Does anybody see any circular reasoning there? What we're really saying when we say that is, I'm the ultimate God and judge of this, whether it's right or wrong. The Christian thinks differently. The Christian says, you're not your own. I don't own myself. God is my owner. God is my maker. He created me. I don't even own my own life. It's his. It's just on lease from him. I'm just a manager. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So Christians are not to commit suicide. Christopher Reeve, after he had the accident, the riding accident that paralyzed him from the neck down back in 1995, could have copped the same attitude as Brittany or Robin. But for the next nine years of his life until 2004, instead of saying, my life is so bad it's not worth living, He said, I'm going to champion the cause of the disabled. And he did in a wonderful way. And oh, he did so much good. This man who'd played Superman became a real Superman in all the good he did for the next nine years of his life. What a great example of not believing your life is your own. Third, this would also say a word to negligent homicide. Negligent homicide is included in this commandment. Look at this passage from God's word, Exodus 21. If a bull gores a man or a woman to death. Now, has your bull gored anybody lately, anybody? This seems a little foreign to us, doesn't it? But a farmer or somebody raising cattle like I grew up would know exactly what this is about. Goring bull can be a problem, and it was In ancient Israel, to us, we might know more about pit bulldogs and things like that and other dangerous animals. So you could just just substitute that. The bull must be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. But the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. In other words, never happened before. There's no indication this bull is dangerous. Wow, what got into him? The owner's not responsible. If, however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it pinned up and it kills a man or woman, the bull must be stoned and the owner also must be put to death. By the way, 
This is the basis for our current laws of negligent homicide. And so if you get into a car drunk, just being real with you, and you know how being in that state of inebriation impairs your ability to drive and you end up killing someone in an accident, you are likely to be convicted of negligent homicide. You're responsible. Fourth, this would also say a word about abortion. Because according to Scripture, life is precious and we should value life from conception to the grave. And and life in the womb is uh, just as valuable as life outside of the womb. When Mother Teresa spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast in 1994. Boy, what a moment that was in time. All the people present that day. When Mother Teresa spoke there, she had a poignant word, okay? But I can't help but wonder if in her mind was this passage of Scripture when she spoke. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands And the court allows. But, but, if there's serious injury, you are to take life for life. I wonder if Mother Teresa wasn't thinking, wow, life in the womb is just as precious as life outside the womb. And she said at that prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill each other? She went on, any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get whatever they want. And I believe she's right on. And finally, this commandment would all say a word word to one of the toughest moral issues of our day, the whole question of euthanasia. Now, For years, medical doctors took an oath, the Hippocratic Oath, where they said in the oath these words, to please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug nor give advice which may cause death. Now, the Hippocratic Oath is no longer required of doctors, although most doctors, I'm told, uh, actually choose to say some kind of oath anyway, as they begin their life as a medical practitioner. But according to the American Medical Journal, over 11% of doctors now say they would prescribe a drug that would hasten a patient's death. Over 11%, according to that journal. Euthanasia is a tough, tough issue. Now, Many of you have grappled with this in your own family. My sister, my oldest sister, Olene, lost her husband just two or three weeks ago. He had a stroke. He was in a coma for a number of days. And um, Billy had asked not to be resuscitated. He was DNR. And Olene was, was caught in this crucible of a decision. And we talked on the phone about it. 
Just as I've talked to so many of you through the years when you're facing that kind of decision with a loved one, and it's so, so tough. What do you do? What do you do? Well, there's three questions that I always bring up to any family, any, any, any person who's facing this decision. And uh, the three questions I think are good guidelines when you're trying to decide, what should I do here in this situation? Uh, one of the questions is, are we using ordinary or extraordinary means to keep the person alive? That's a, a very important question. Another question is, are we actually prolonging life or are we just delaying death? In other words, is there any realistic, realistic hope of recovery? Okay. And then the final question, is it active or passive? Active euthanasia would be to give a pill or a lethal injection to the patient. It's active. Passive is you simply discontinue the medical procedures and let nature run its course. And so there's a huge difference between all those. But one thing that helped my sister determine after considering those three things was was Billy had been extremely passionate in his desire not to be resuscitated. He had said, please, please, please don't have me on machines. And so he was only able to keep breathing and his heart functioning through all these machines. And so finally, she made the gut-wrenching choice of having them removed. Now, if you face that decision, I would urge you as a family to be very prayerful as you make those deliberations. But through it all, I would ask you to keep this forefront in your mind that life is precious. Life is valuable from conception all the way to its very end. Leo Alexander, Dr. Leo Alexander was involved in prosecuting war criminals after World War II, and he wrote extensively about what he discovered in all of his research and all of those trials. And I'll just share a little bit of what he said before we transition to our final look today at what Jesus had to say about this. He started, he said, before the war ever broke out, the, the Nazis and the German people had already executed over, exterminated over a quarter of a million of their own people. He wrote, and I quote, it started with the acceptance of the attitude, quote, there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. And that attitude in its early stages concerned itself with the severely and chronically sick. But gradually the sphere of those to be included in this category was enlarged to encompass the socially unproductive, the ideologically unwanted, the racially unwanted, and finally all non-Germans. But it's important to realize that the small wedged-in lever from which this entire trend received its impetus was the attitude toward the non-rehabilitative sick. He goes on to say the first gas chamber wasn't really Hitler's. It belonged to some psychiatrists who began exterminating certain mental patients. And then they went from there. Pediatricians joined in, began emptying the institutions for handicapped children in 1939. And Dr. Alexander writes, and I finish with this, by 1945, these doctors had so lowered the price tag that they were killing bedwetters, children with misshapen ears, 
and those with learning disabilities. And there's a sad line at the end of the Nuremberg war crimes trial in which a German officer looks at the pictures of hundreds of Jewish bodies stacked in a pile and he makes this haunting statement, I never thought it would come to this. I never thought it would come to this. Life is valuable from conception to its very end. But let's go down home stretch today by spending just a few moments looking at what Jesus said about this. Jesus' thoughts on the sixth commandment. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, some people, and, and I uh, have friends that I love and respect who, who believe this, believe that all Christians should just be utter and complete pacifists. And so when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he was making a statement there about anyone, another country, a criminal, psychopath, don't, no violence of any kind. My problem with that is if we take that to its logical conclusion, crime would be rampant. It would be utterly chaotic in the community and in the world. My belief is Jesus wasn't speaking to criminal activity here at all. Jesus, the one who said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The one who said, I did not come to abolish the law, his Old Testament covenant included capital punishment. It included retribution for wrongdoers. In the book of Romans chapter 13, Paul writes about government officials that they do not bear the sword for nothing. So there ought to be an awesome respect and fear. If we do wrong, we should be afraid, Paul says, because there's a price to pay for that, for criminal activity. I think Jesus was talking about a personal slight I think he would say, look, if somebody disses you, you don't have to diss them back. Be bigger than that. If somebody gets in your personal space and disrespects you or uh, hits you or, or does something bad to you, listen, don't get in this tit-for-tat mode. Don't get in the mode of revenge. You deal with your anger and deal with it in a redemptive way. In fact, I think the heart of teach, Jesus' teaching on this is found in this passage. You've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And that's what we've been studying today, right? But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be danger in danger of the fire of hell. So what's Jesus' basic take on this? He says, look, don't be so proud of yourself because you haven't committed actual murder. Deal with the anger in your heart. And while I think most of us today would say, I've never murdered anybody, I think we'd also have to admit, I've read a few obituaries with glee. Because that was just a bad person. Right? So here's the bottom line. 
If you're so bitter against someone, you want them dead. Jesus says you're, you're a murderer. You're guilty of murder in your heart. If you despise someone so much that you kill their reputation, you're a murderer. If you assassinate someone's family through gossip, Jesus says you're a murderer in your heart. And if you execute someone's success through your meanness, Jesus says you've got a big problem. You need to go to the root of that. You need to deal with the anger and the hatred that's in your heart. Just don't be so happy you never pulled the trigger. Get down to the source of the problem. When I was in the fourth grade, I was pulled out of school one day, and I didn't know what in the world was going on. An official came and said I need to be released from class, fourth grader. And I found out that earlier that morning, my uncle Buck, my dad's twin brother, had killed his wife and his wife's lover. Uncle Buck and his five children, his wife Nancy, lived just a half mile up the road from us, up the little dirt road. And uh, I grew up with those, their five kids, and, and they were my first cousins. And uh, Uncle Buck was a simple man, a hog farmer, a farmer who raised cotton and corn and all that. And, and so his wife, he had a spotless reputation in the community. His wife had been away for a week on vacation with her boyfriend. And she came back, and they said to Uncle Buck, hit the road. The man said, I'm taking your wife, your family, your farm. Get out of here. And Buck, in a moment of anger, got his shotgun and killed them. After killing them, um, he walked a half mile across the open pasture there, his pasture, down to our house. My father was off working somewhere that morning. And my mother was there keeping... Uh, my nephew, five-year-old Randy. And Buck told my mom what he had done, and he said, I need to be in jail. We need to tell somebody. And so we had no telephone. We didn't get a telephone for years after that. And so my mom and Uncle Buck and five-year-old Randy began walking down the dirt road a mile in the opposite direction to the nearest telephone. And so... Uncle Buck called the police, said what he had done, and said, I guess, you need to, I guess I need to be locked up. Can you come and pick me up? And so they waited there until the police came to put him in jail. And, of course, this was the talk of Lawrence County, Tennessee. I mean, this was big news. And this humble farmer had never done anything. Wow, what's going on here? And this woman runs away for a week. And so... During the emotional trial that was front page news every day in Lawrence County, uh, eventually my Uncle Buck was exonerated, partially because he had a spotless character up to that point, partially because in that region, adultery is considered at least as bad as murder. And if you can believe it, partially because the jury concluded, and these were literally their words, any man in these parts whose wife did that would do what he did or worse. So whatever you may think about that conclusion, my Uncle Buck was exonerated. I spent a lot of time with him after that. He would spend a lot of sweltering summer evenings, come down 
to our house and sit with my father and me out under the stars. It's too hot to be in the house. And we'd sit outside fighting mosquitoes all evening. And we'd talk about all kinds of stuff. He lived about a decade longer than my dad, his twin brother, did. And when I was away at college and seminary and, and, and later working for the, the, the Billy Graham team, I would come home. My mom would say, why don't you go visit your Uncle Buck? He had finally gotten to a point he couldn't work the farm anymore, and he bought a little house nearer to the town. So I'd go by and sit with Uncle Buck, and we'd talk about what farming used to be like, and we'd talk about his family. And increasingly, through the years, when I would visit, he would talk about the Bible. Because he'd started attending a church, and he'd started reading his Bible. But one time I went to visit, he was agitated. He looked scared. He'd run across a little phrase in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 15. And it says this, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. No murderer has eternal life in him. And his question to me that day was, is there any way I can really be forgiven for what I've done? And I was so glad that day that I could tell Uncle Buck about a gospel of grace. I said, Uncle Buck, there's a sense in which we're all murderers. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. Martin Luther even said, we carry the nails in our pockets. We all deserve the death penalty, but that's what the gospel's all about, Uncle Buck. Jesus went to the cross to take the death penalty that I deserve that you deserve so that we can be forgiven and go free. Just a few months after that, my Uncle Buck passed away. My Uncle Buck died a murderer. A murderer forgiven by the grace of God. And can I say something to you today? It doesn't matter who you are. Your life is immeasurably precious to God. Every breath you take is meaningful. Your life is precious. But can I tell you something else? It doesn't even matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. His grace is greater than what you've done. His grace is greater than all of our sin. Father, would you help us today to understand how amazing grace really is. Lord, I thank you that you can forgive a murderer like Uncle Buck. I thank you that you can forgive a sinner like me. I thank you, Lord, that you love to lavish grace on faulty, flawed, failing people just like us. Remind us today that our life is precious to you. Remind us today that your grace is greater than all of our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.
Ushers, would you please come now as we continue for just a few more moments together in worship. Let's worship God with our tithes and offerings today. Let's continue to worship Him together.